Please open your scriptures to Matthew chapter 5. If you've ever wondered what a sermon by Jesus himself would sound like, this is it. Matthew's chapter, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. We are in a sermon series on a single sermon that Jesus delivered. Remember, he didn't expound beyond this, at least not here. It was read in one setting. And so we're trying to take this section by section, not too much at a time, but not too little either, because this stands as a single sermon. The text, if you open to Matthew chapter 5, defines the recipients. Look at verse 1. His disciples came to him. Right? Remember the populous crowds had gathered from all around the regions, even as far down as Jerusalem and Syria and from the Decapolis, the, the ten cities. They all gathered together, but he withdrew, went up on a mountain, and his disciples came to him. A disciple is a follower learner. That's all that means. The text also defines the subject of the sermon. And the subject of the sermon is life in the kingdom of God. After Jesus' confrontation in Matthew chapter 4 in the wilderness with the personality of Satan, in chapter 4 verse 17, scriptures say this, from that time, of course he, he leaves, John the Baptist is arrested, he moves up to live by Capernaum, which is by the Sea of Galilee. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, and here's the theme of the Sermon on the Mount, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is inaugurating a new kingdom. He's saying the kingdom is now near. It's at hand. And what is our responsibility? To turn back to God. To turn away from our sin and turn to God. Jesus begins his sermon with that subject. Look at verse 2. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, he gives the first what we call a beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is, and there's the subject, the kingdom of heaven. Jesus uses the phrase, the kingdom of heaven, four more times in this sermon alone. So the subject, and this, this, this should be interesting, the subject of Christ's earthly preaching was not the cross. It was the kingdom of heaven, which is inaugurated and then established through his cross work. But when Jesus taught and when he preached, the subject was the kingdom. So what is the kingdom? I mean, what is the kingdom of God or the, or the kingdom of heaven? Every king has, or every kingdom has three aspects. It has a ruler or a king. It has a realm and it has rules. That's true of the United States of America. We have a leader. We have a realm. We have borders and we have rules. Okay. That's what it means to live within a kingdom. And depending on often depending on the ruler, determines how the people live within that realm. The kingdom of heaven, and if you just make this note, in Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 to 26, same gospel account, these terms are used synonymously. Eternal life, heaven, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, and saved some of those terms are familiar for us. All those terms, eternal life is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God is the kingdom of heaven. Being saved means the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. All of those being used synonymously. 
Being in the kingdom then is the same as being saved. And Jesus' sermon is about kingdom citizens. I think an important question for every one of us to ask this morning is, if Jesus were to return today, am I, we often say, going to heaven, but am I in the kingdom? When the king comes, would he say of every one of us, you are a kingdom citizen. You are entering into eternal life, which is the kingdom of God, which is being saved, which is the kingdom of heaven. You're going to see this. You see this throughout the Gospels. You see it particularly clear when Jesus confronts the woman at the well and the rich young man. And in both cases, it was about lordship, rulership. And you see the woman at the well who had a history of sin contrasted with the rich young ruler who said, I've kept all those commandments for my youth up. And yet the lady becomes a kingdom citizen and the rich young ruler walks away from the king. That's the contrast that we see throughout the gospel. She followed and obeyed Christ. That's what lordship, that's what being a kingdom citizen looks like. He did not. He left clutching his earthly treasure, which was his true ruler, his true king. Well, let's look at the basic character of Jesus' followers. We're going to, we're going to look in verse 3 and move our way down. So here's the structure, beginning in verse 3. There are eight total Beatitudes. Each begins with this. Blessed are the, for example, poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are, and, and it just keeps going on and expounding. Each begins with a divine exclamation. The word blessed is used nine times, twice for the eighth, so nine times for eight different variations. The word beatitude simply means utmost bliss or supreme blessedness. So we would say this, very happy are the people that live like this. Now, that'll be challenged in our, in our thinking this morning. That'll be challenged by the Word, but it'll also be challenged by this small voice in our own hearts that's going to rise up and say, is that really true? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Is it really true that the meek are blessed? Okay, we're going to look at that because this is what Jesus is teaching. Each beatitude contains a quality. So there are eight qualities that we need to sort of um, highlight and note. They constitute the responsibilities. Eight qualities describe the same group. So it's not that, well, I'm going to hunger and thirst after righteousness, but I don't have to be poor in spirit. It's similar to the fruit of the spirit. The fruit, singular, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's not that, that I'm going to show love, but I really am going to express no self-control. No, if you are controlled by the Holy Spirit, you will have the singular fruit that expresses itself in, in, a, in a manifold way. Same with the Beatitudes. And the point here is, and somebody has called this a thin Old Testament law, the point of the Beatitudes is to say, are you really in the kingdom or not? Is Jesus really your king or not? Because these cannot be lived out consistently in their entirety by our own flesh. So the, the Sermon on the Mount in, in a very spectacular way, is going to let you know, it's going to let me know, do I just have religion? Or am I really a follower of the King? 
That's, that's the effectiveness of this sermon. Each ends with a promise. There aren't just responsibilities, right? There's a divine exclamation, blessed. Then you have the responsibility, but you also have a promise. It repeatedly, it repeatedly says this, for theirs is, for they shall be, for they shall. That's used five times. And then for theirs is. You'll also note that the first and the eighth beatitude end with for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's a bracketed, often called an inclusio, and it means that all of these, what they're expounding, is what it means to be in the kingdom of heaven. Everything bracketed together. So let's look at these qualities. Look at verse 3. The quality of kingdom citizens. Blessed are the poor in spirit. There are two Greek words used to describe poverty. The first refers to a a laborer who must work every day of his life until he dies simply to put food on the table. It's a hand-to-mouth existence. Okay, that's, that's one level of poverty, if you would. There's another word that means someone that is so poor, so destitute, he has lost all wealth, all position, all honor, that he must, and here's the word, he must crouch down and beg. Guess what word Jesus uses? He uses to crouch down and beg. So he's not honoring physical poverty. Remember, blessed are the poor in what? Spirit. Blessed are those who internally bow down before the king and ask for something they cannot earn. So you could still, in poverty, put food on the table. Poor people throughout history have been able, for the most part, to at least get something for their families to eat. But true poverty, this is spiritual destitution. This is spiritual bankruptcy. This is the person who comes to God and says, I've got nothing. I've got nothing to offer. Poor in spirit. No argument. No plea. No work. As a result, they bow down and they confess. The older hymn, the hymn Rock of Ages, captures this. Listen to the text. The hymn writer caught the meaning of this. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Blessed, happy are the poor in spirit. Why? Look at what it says. Here's the promise. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is how Jesus presents the heart of those who truly believe in him. And you're blessed because guess what? If that's how you came to the king and you came crouching and that's how you entered the kingdom, you're blessed because you are promised now the kingdom of heaven. Look at the second one. Look at verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn. What a paradox, huh? Happy are the miserable. Happy are the unhappy. So so you, you should be asking a question right now. Instead of drifting off, you should be going... Okay, that doesn't initially make sense. So what does Jesus mean? Mourn indicates deep grief. 
We could say it this way. Contrition is what makes confession genuine. The Spirit of God convicts us of our sin. That's His ministry according to John chapter 16. The Spirit of God comes and He convinces us of our sin of unbelief to the point that, right? It's not just that, oh yeah, I'm aware of that, but I'll take care of that later. No, the Holy Spirit convinces us of our sin of unbelief to the point that we bow down and ask for saving. Paul said in Romans 7.24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He says this in 2 Corinthians 7.9 to the church at Corinth, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting For you felt a godly grief. Have you ever felt that? Is there ever a time in your life where you weren't just trying to please somebody that was marching you through the cadences of getting saved, but that there was a point where you mourned over sin? You grieved over sin. It was like the grief that accompanies the burying of a loved one. And because of your sin before a king, you grieved exceedingly. James says this, Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. I mean, what does that look like? What does cleansing our hands, which, which indicates action, or our hearts, our minds and affections, what does that look like? Listen to what James says in James chapter 4, verse 9. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Here's the blessed part. Humble yourselves before the Lord. He will exalt you. Blessed people are sorrowfully repentant. Do you know why? Look at verse 4, the end end part, the promise. For they shall be comforted. If you're here questioning if this is true or not, talk to someone that you have observed their life, you have followed their teaching and their lifestyle and say, is this true? So what happens after you have deep grief over sin? There is an unexplainable comfort that the Holy Spirit gives through that cleansing and that washing. Look at the third quality. Verse 5. Blessed are the meek. It's not a popular quality in our day. Uh, basically, Jesus is saying, happy are the gentle Happy are the humble. Happy are the considerate. It's the nature of wild animals to be wild. Proverbs even uses this as an illustration. The writer of the Proverbs says, Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near to you. Elephants, though a lot of people think uh, are a docile creature, are, are one of the most dangerous African animals. That's why they make the big five, five animals that sort of turn the whole hunter-hunting concept on you if you anger one or injure one. The elephant is classified with the lion and the leopard and the Cape buffalo. And the hunters will say it plays a game called stomp and stick. Right? It stomps, it'll bat you down with its trunk, which becomes like a timber, and then it tries to stomp you with its weight, and if he has the ivory tusks, he tries to stick you. Okay? And yet, I placed one of my children, several of my children, on the back of an elephant. 
How? Because you're a reckless father. No. How? Because it was under control. It was meek. Now, there are wild elephants that we wouldn't even go near, and some chased our vehicles, but there was this particular elephant that had been trained to have its strength under control, just like a horse. And you would put your child in a saddle. Has the horse or the elephant lost any of its strength? No. There was one particular elephant that our children rode that a year later killed its trainer. It lost none of its strength. But it is strength under control. Do you know what kingdom citizens look like? Their strength is under control. Their will is now under a king because they are part of a kingdom and they align with the rules of the kingdom. The source of meekness, it includes self-control, but it is self-control that is worked out by spirit control. Right? Galatians chapter 5, walk in the spirit and then the fruit of the spirit is the last one, self-control. Ephesians 5.18, don't be drunk with wine. What does wine do? Wine controls you. Alcohol controls you. It affects your thinking. It affects your cadence. It affects your eyes. It affects your actions. Don't be drunk like that. Don't be under the influence of that, but be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Blessed is the person who is meek, who is under the control of another for the sake of God's glory. Why? Look at verse 5. For they shall inherit the earth. Okay, the new earth, possibly. Inherit something. It is an inheritance that we haven't quite seen yet, but the meek are promised it. The world says the meek get nowhere and in the end have nothing. You know what God says? The meek have the entire earth. So we walk forward by faith. Now, when the Spirit of God has His way in a person's life, they will be meek and their appetites change. Look at the next quality. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Hunger and thirst, like blinking, are involuntary desires. The object of a, of a truly born-again person or the object of a true kingdom citizen, uh, the object of that person's hunger and thirst is what? What does the text say? Righteousness. How do you thirst for righteousness? Well, first of all, righteousness in the Bible has at least three aspects. A legal aspect, a moral aspect, and a social aspect. Righteousness in Scripture always includes at least two different parties, two different people, or more. So, as we stand before God, what does righteousness look like? Have we met our obligations before God alone? No, there is none righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and come short of God's glory. I love how the New Living Translation says it. Everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. So what can be done? Romans 3 answers that. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, that means the law and the prophets, the Old Testament were speaking towards this. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace. What, is, what does it mean to justify? 
to legally declare what? Righteous. But we're not. Scripture just said we're not. We've all fallen short. Yes, but in Christ, through faith, by grace, the judge of all the earth can say, I legally declare you as righteous as Jesus Christ. And you say, but I'm not. That's poor in spirit. And God says, no, but you are because you are in Christ by faith through grace. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The the greatest evidence that this is true of you, the greatest evidence that the judge of all the earth has legally declared you righteous is this. You now hunger and thirst for righteousness in your relationships, morally and socially. This is what kingdom citizens look for. We meet our obligations to one another. We keep our word with one another. We keep covenant. Covenant breakers are not hungering and thirsting for righteousness. But true kingdom citizens desire and long for this. And I love this. Blessed is the person who does this. Look at verse 6. For they shall be what? Satisfied. Look at verse 7. Blessed are the merciful. Okay, is this a quality that, that shows up in your life? Mercy is compassion for people in need. So, so this is what grace does. Grace views people as undeserving. And so it gifts them with grace. It gives something to the undeserving that they don't deserve. Mercy views people as miserable. God does both, by the way. God sees us as undeserving and God pities us. But the pity is different. Mercy, mercy actually takes action, whereas pity can stand from a distance. Have you ever done that with somebody in need? You kind of stand at a distance and you're like, oh, I, I feel for them. I pity them. But then you, you keep driving. I'm talking about a real need, not a fabricated social need, but a real need. You know what mercy does? Pity can stay at a distance. Mercy moves in and meets the need to relieve suffering. You know God did that to you if you're a believer? Even while we were yet sinners, what? Christ died. He moved near to relieve that suffering. He didn't just pity us. He showed mercy on us and grace. It is suffering with. So if you have the greatest evidence again that you have received God's mercy, is that what? That you show mercy. That you are relieving the suffering of others. This could be tangibly, but it could also be sharing them with them the good news to save them from the wrath to come. Blessed is the person who is merciful. Look at verse 7. For they shall receive mercy. No, you've already received mercy. But there is another abundant supply for showing that mercy. Look at verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart. Okay, The heart, the center of our personality, our mind, our will, our volition, our emotions, our affections, the center and core of our personality. Blessed are those who internally are pure. This refers to moral or internal cleansing rather than just ceremonial cleansing. Listen to what Jesus told the Pharisees. This is the distinction He's making. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within, right, inside the heart, 
are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. You hear this often from, from this pulpit, but, but religious activity is no proof that you are pure. Some of the most impure people have done their actions under the banner of religion. Religious activity, religious actions, religious faithfulness is zero indication that your heart has been made pure by God. After his double sin of adultery and murder, listen to what David prayed. Psalm 51.10, he says this, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Because that's where the dirt was. That's where the filth was. Blessed is the person who is pure in heart. Look at verse 7. For they shall see God. I love that promise. You will see Him now with the eye of faith in a very real way. And one day soon you will behold Him face to face. Do you know impurity keeps you from seeing God? Habitual impurity can actually put blinders on your eyes. Even for the believer. A habitual sinful practice can cause you to apostatize because you no longer see Him and then your faith is attacked and you start questioning everything that this world offers. Listen to what John says in 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Look at verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers. Peace is simply well-being. This is not just being at peace. It's not just the sort of the passive. It's not just that you know subjective sort of you know real calmness. That's not what it's talking about. These people are active. Yes, they have peace with God. Romans chapter five verse one. Therefore, since we have been justified, there it is. We've been legally declared righteous. We by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But now we don't just. We don't just sit back and, and remain at peace and at ease. We are actually what? Making peace. We're peacemakers. Kingdom citizens actively promote the well-being of others. We make peace in the church. We make peace in our homes. We make peace in our communities. Blessed is the person who makes peace. Here's your promise. Look at verse 9. For they shall be called sons of God. Wait, I thought we were already kingdom citizens. We are. But nothing displays the fact that you are God's child more than you are making peace. So what, have it, what an indictment against divisiveness. What an indictment against slander. What an indictment against gossip and friction and unrepentant interpersonality conflicts. Because honestly, they don't look godly like God. They don't look like sons of God, children of God. You know who, you know who does look like God? You know who will be called children of God? Those who are actively making peace. And here's the reality. No matter how hard we try to make peace with some people, they refuse to live at peace with us. So look at the last beatitude. Look at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Right? There's no, by the way, there's no blessing for being persecuted because you're annoying. It's just not. Right? Or, or because you're foolish. Or because you're arrogant. 
or because you do things that are just inappropriate in any culture. There's no blessing for being persecuted for those things. But there is a blessing for being persecuted for righteousness' sake, for being a child of God, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, that's that other bracket. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. Here it is, on my account. Because you're a Jesus follower, because you look like a kingdom citizen under the Lordship of Christ, that's why they're doing this to you. See, most of the other Beatitudes are our response to either God or other people. This Beatitude concerns people's response to us. And what makes this one a little more difficult is this one is out of our control, isn't it? Not all attempts at reconciliation succeed. But since all the other Beatitudes are normative, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who are meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, those are all normative, then we need to understand that typically persecution is normative as well. This is the normal experience of those who clearly and visibly follow Jesus Christ. Notice the kinds of persecution. Revile. That's that's abusive speech. Persecuted. That simply means someone is pursuing you with the intent of physical harm. And look at the third kind of persecution. Utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. So that, that also includes abusive speech, but this adds on to it slanderous lies. And you know what makes those most, the most painful? I'd rather, be, I'd, I'd rather be punched in the jaw than somebody lie about me slander me in deception and other people believe it. These are the kinds of persecution that, that, it, that are normative for those who are kingdom citizens. But here's the promise. For theirs is the kingdom of God. These are, these are characteristics of every disciple's life. This isn't, this isn't for an elite group of people. It's not for the apostles. It's not for elders. It's for every single believer. His disciples, his follower learners, came up and he preached these things. Now, quickly, Jesus now tells us how our influence, how how living this out, how being true, authentic kingdom citizens, how it prevents deterioration and it illumines darkness. So, So we might say, what effect does that have on a world that's dying? Look at verse 13. Preservation from deterioration. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So the question would be, is it possible for a true believer to drink so deeply from the world that they lose their influence? Look at verse 14. Not only preservation from deterioration, but illuminating in darkness. You are the light of the world. The city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I love the simplicity of Jesus' teaching. These are things that as a young boy he would have seen his mother use. He would have seen her use salt to preserve things. And when the sun went down, he would have seen her use light to illumine where they lived. That's all he's saying. He doesn't really even expound. He says, you're the salt of the earth, influence. You're the light of the world, influence. 
Kingdom citizens are used to, to stem the tide of decay and death. And human kingdom citizens are used to illumine what is dark because people still sit in darkness. So we would say this, salt and light are indispensable household commodities. We used both yesterday. In 2019. And we've already used light this morning. And many of you already used salt this morning. These are indispensable household commodities. Do you know what's true also? Salt and light are indispensable spiritual qualities. So ask yourself, am I having a preserving effect or not? Am I illumining darkness or not? Do I just add more decaying meat to what is already decaying meat? And do I just come in and add more darkness to a place that is already dark? And folks, the answer to those is probably most likely then you're not a kingdom citizen. But if you have a preserving effect of saltiness and an illumining effect of light, there is a good chance you are a kingdom citizen. This is where Jesus is going with this. Listen to his conclusion again in, in, at, the end of, at the end of the sermon. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house. Those are images of judgment. Judgment hits that man's house and it stands. It says it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. But there's, there's a contrast. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them and you failed, you, you failed to evaluate your life through them. You failed to say, I'm not meek. I've never been poor in spirit. I don't desire righteousness. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish person who built his house on the sand. And the same judgment comes. The rain falls and the floods rise and the winds blow and beat against that house. But with a totally different result. And it fell. This is Jesus' teaching. These are the last words of the sermon. Are you ready? And great was the fall of it. He's talking about a life. He's talking about a soul. He's talking about you at this point, living and breathing life this morning and saying, is He my King? Do I belong to the realm of His kingdom? Do I obey the rules of His kingdom? Or if you could say, I'm not even interested. And you know what? The sad truth of that is, I'm not even born again. And you know, the hope this morning is you can still call out to the King of kings and Lord of lords and by faith receive His gift of grace. You can do that. Nobody's going to pressure you into it or manipulate you into it or intimidate you into it because it's a gift. I've never had to intimidate my children to receive a gift. You better take that. Or, mm, you know, I was... That's not how I handle it anyway, but you know, you never had to do that. You, you, you give them something, it's wrapped, and their eye. That's the beauty of a gift. Do you know God has gifted you His Son? And He can cleanse you inside. And He can make you white as snow. And He can give you comfort. And He'll allow you to see Him with the eyes of faith. And He'll give you satisfaction. And He'll give you blessedness. Let's pray.